very excited about some of the, some of the things that are going to uh, be revealed here. And um, sometimes, because I've already learned them and done so so long ago, I forget. And I'm so thankful for some of you guys out there who come to me and say, well, I didn't understand this or I didn't understand that. Um, and for just the casual conversations, I know I, um, uh, Craig and I talked yesterday and he and I were bantering back and forth about um, uh, Ezekiel's message. Do you remember what you said? Yeah, and it was kind of like, okay, couldn't he have just said it in like one or two chapters and that would have been enough? Or one or two paragraphs, that'd be good too. But you tell me, as we talked about it, it, I think it really came, became obvious to me here. Does anybody have some thoughts on that? Why would God spend, we're all the way into chapter 28 and he's still talking about this. The very last two verses of of Ezekiel 28 were what? When I take Israel and, and uh, return her to her land, right, then they will know what? That I am the Lord. That I am the Lord. Okay, so he's gone through this whole thing. He's talking about how he's going to bring judgment. Why does he have to spend 28 chapters saying, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you? Think of it. They weren't listening. Okay, they weren't listening. It seemed like they needed to hear it over and over. Yes, very much so. You know, think of the time factor that's involved here. How much time have we been looking at thus far? With just Ezekiel, it started, it started nine, was it nine years ago or seven years ago now? I can't remember now off the top of my head. Do you, do you remember how many years? Oh, the 11th year in 26, right? Right, so we're now 11 years into just Ezekiel's prophesying. Were there prophets even before Ezekiel? Yes. So what does this tell you then about God and his need to keep telling them and telling them and telling them? Yes, if you don't see the patience of God reaching out to his, and faithfulness, faithfulness to his word. Yes, Lisa. Right, that's exactly right. Unbelief. Wow, that's a good one, Lisa. That one definitely something you and I can all agree with, right? We can all identify with that one because are there not those who are unfaithful in this world that we live in, who who make our lives miserable as Christians in particular? Um, all right. Um, I think about the fact, too, that, you know, at what point in history did all this rebellion by Israel start? (laughs) Like from the day when God, through Moses, started to take them out. Yes, exactly. When Moses went on the mountain to get get the, yes. 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 He came chasing for him and he couldn't find him. Right. He was sitting there right. And she hit him. Yeah. So there, and that was during the years when they were still on the land and God wasn't saying a whole lot about repent, repent yet, I, at least as far as I know. Although the judges did come through. We had the judges who kept judging them. That's true. We have to study the judges one day. I haven't done that one yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, even in the, the second giving of the law, it's like when you fail to obey, 
Thank you. Yes. That, wasn't that an interesting operative word? And only a preceptor would really pick that one up, that win word. But when you don't, this is what I'm going to do. He actually did that when he gave them the, t- the law anyway to begin with. On Mount Sinai, he came down. And the first thing he did is he gave them the law. And then what did he immediately follow with? Yeah, the, the temple services. So how you could atone for it, right? All right. So we have got here so much to cover. We are going to pick up with uh, and start with uh, Ezekiel chapter 25. And I'm not going to put tons of notes up here. Primarily, all I really want to do is get titles up here. But I want to talk just briefly about it. What do you see? And I know Kathleen has already told me. She did lots of historical research on some of these, um, you know, the roots of these nations, which is really interesting. Some of the, one of my favorites is Edom because of where it leads to. But... That's another, another lesson I will teach at another time, hopefully. But tell me, what did you guys find? The first one is who? Amon, right? Or, yeah, or Amon, however you want to say it. Yes, Ra- Raquel? Yes, okay, so he is a son of Lot. And who was Lot? Nephew of Abraham. <laughs> Okay, and when God made the covenant with Abraham, what had he told Abraham to actually do? To leave your family, now, his wife, twain or one flesh, that's good. Yes. But not bring your family with you. Right, and what did Abraham do? He not only brought Lot, he also brought who? His father, Terah, right? What happened with Terah was God, he caused him, for whatever reasons I can't recall now, but they camped out in... um, in uh, Haran, right, for a period of time. And there's where Terah died. And then Abraham went down into the land and he sojourned up and down and observed what God was going to give him. And then he had Lot with him still, right? So then there came a, a rift there. So that's kind of the storyline behind that if you're not as familiar. He had ar- Even Abraham himself, who was coming into this initial covenant with God before they went on their land, but the promise of the land, he already himself was... Not fully obeying God, right? Amazing. So, and so where is uh, Ammon today or Ammon today? Present day what? That's right. Present day Jordan. It's, the, it's more the northern uh, part of Jordan, right? Then there's the next one is Moab. And who is Moab? Yep. He was the other one. He was the brother to Avon. Yes. Isn't that amazing that, see, even in the midst of a very twisted start, God can find a faithful heart. I think about that Chronicles verse that uh, uh, Celeste and I talk about it occasionally, but that his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth seeking those whom he might fully support, right? And there's one. He found Ruth, this Moabite, who said, your God shall be my God, right? Um, all right, so we have him. And where is that today, location-wise? Well, if the brother's in northern Jordan, where do you think the other one is? Southern Jordan. <laughs> ah, so simple. They're hanging out. Their Christmases and Thanksgivings are much easier because they're close. <laughs> if they celebrate, right? <laughs> okay. 
So we have those two. And then we have another one mentioned who is e- um, Edom, right? And, it's, and it mentions the word seer. Did anybody figure that one out, what seer is talking about? Yes. So Seir is like the mountainous range, that area. Okay, so it's the land, the name of the land area. Moab is the name of the person, and it becomes the people group become then the Edomites, right? All right. And do you, do you know where they are located? You just keep going further down north, right? They're, be, they're between the uh, Dead Sea and the Red Sea basically, in that area just down along. So really, you've got, you've got Ammon, uh, uh, Ammon, Moab, and then um, Edom, okay? And, okay, so before we move, and then there's Ham. So before we move beyond all this, is there any insights, Kathleen, that you can give us about these that we haven't pointed out yet that are really interesting? Yes. Yeah. That's right. Well, very cool. Interesting. You know what I think is even more amazing is trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve. Then, then what does that do to the whole world? Your brother and sister is anyone, really. Uh, unless you're speaking of in Christ, brother and sister in Christ, that's a distinctive class, but your brothers and sisters on the planet Earth are everyone, right? Because we all came from where? Adam and Eve. God created. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, from God, who is our Father. Exactly. Which is why people can, can still refer to him as the Father, but he's not necessarily their Savior, right? Okay. Then the last one is Ham. And who is that? Yes. Oh, Edom. I don't... Um, it's the area below Jordan. What's uh, uh, they called it the Araba? It is still Jordan, Jordan and Saudi Saudi Arabia. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. So when our geography isn't great, but look on your map and you you will see it there on the map. You can color it in. Did y'all do your map work? I hope. If you did, you would have. You would. You can see it on that map. It's it's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now uh, Ham. Or, oh, sorry, the Philistines. Who? So where did the Philistines come from? Ham. Who is? Who I blurted out right away, didn't I? <laughs> Oops. Ham's descendants are the Philistines, and they are where, location-wise, along the coastline. They're they're called seafaring people. Right, so they're along that coastline, and it's basically in it right south south of uh, Israel. Okay, um, you know I don't know. It's cl- it it could be could even be parts of Israel itself. I think are they? Is, does anybody know? Uh, the Philistines, where the Philistines are, is that part of Israel? They're Gaza. Okay. I wasn't sure, and I didn't have, that was one thing I did not have time to do and was to look at that. I'm going to write that on there. 
You're absolutely right. And I'm going to put your name on this. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Craig says it's Gaza. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, so now let's just jump into the, the heart of what's going on here with these nations that are mentioned in this chapter. What is the reason behind it? Did you notice there's a key repeated word, because? Did you all pick up on that market? Okay, so let's just note the becauses up here on this, that God is going to judge, right? Okay, so let's do the becauses. Why are they going to be judged? What, What does it say about Amon? Mm-hmm. In, in, uh, in verse 3. Uh-huh. I got to... Pe- hold on a second. I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong chapter. 25. Here we go. Okay. Uh, so he, he said, when you said, aha, right? What does that mean when you said, aha? What kind of a... I told you so. Okay. Kind of an I told you so. All right, a superiority thing. What else? There you go. That's exactly what they're gloating over the the demise of their brothers, right? So it's a gloating thing. Aha, ooh, yay, good, yay, good. And why was it good? Why were they gloating? What did that mean to them? I think Kay took us back to chapter 21, right? And we were supposed to look at some of those verses starting in 28 to 32. And in, that, in those passages, he says about Amon, he's going to judge him. That's the one where Ezekiel had those various uh, visions. And one of them was where he was to draw a map and the map was to have a Y, remember? And it would be two ways by which Babylon would come. Do you remember that? I said a Y because that's how I envisioned the map with a, with a Y. And he had a choice and so he divined, right? Yeah. And he, then he decided to, who, to go where first? To Jerusalem first. And so then what did Amon do when he saw Jerusalem being attacked? Aha! And he's happy. Why? Not just better you than me, but actually something beyond that too. What else was he going to do? What was going to happen because uh, they were now taken care of for, for them? Yeah. And then that pathway... You see, that was, what was that road that went through there? The Silk, not the Silk Road. What was a, it was a primary road of, tra- of commerce and travel. And I forgot which road it was called. The King's Highway. Thank you. And through which there, then there was this free commerce and trade that could go through to and fro. And so for them, it was a financial thing too. They were going to bend it financially if, if Jerusalem was down and all these lands were taken care of, right? So they would have more commerce and, and free trade for them. So they, they were very happy about that. They rejoiced at Jerusalem's fall, right? They said, um, you said, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profane and against the land of Israel when it was made desolate and against the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, I'm going to now judge you. So because Amon said, aha, and what that meant was, that, that they were going to benefit from it. So they were rejoicing at her demise. Right? Okay, then the next, because is Moab. 
And what did Moab do that was, uh, caused God to come and judge them? And this is just the tip of the iceberg. If we had time to really go in and study out all the things that these countries have done, there's other, like Obadiah, I think, is another one that covers this and talks about eventual destruction of these various places. But what did we see with Moab in this chapter 25? Okay. Did you see the because statement there? Yes. Okay, let's see. I'm looking at... Because Moab and Seir say what? Behold, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Now, what does that mean when he says they're like all the nations? What is he in essence saying about them? Very good. Isn't that amazing? I had to actually do a lot of research to figure that one out because I wasn't getting it. Aha, they're just like all the other nations. And I thought, well, what does that mean? And how is that an insult, right? And what he was doing is he was demeaning their relationship with God, that they were not a special people. They were not a set out or set apart people, that they were not the one who God set upon a hill to be the light right? And that there was nothing better about them because of their God. They were just like all the other nations, right? And that's what that was all about. So Moab said, uh, Judah is just like, is like all the nations. So he demeaned them. How do you spell demean? E-A-N. He demeaned them. Thank you. <laughs> I, need, I need spelling lessons here. Okay, so that's in verse 8. That one was in verse 3. So um, that, was, that was what was... Oh, they are the ones that mo- was the Moab one, I think. And I don't know if that was the same with Ammon or, Ammon or not. But when I talked about the why thing, I think it was uh, this one. Okay, so then the next one is Edom. There's so much history. This is what I was talking earlier before class started. There's so much history with Israel. You'd have to be really a historical expert, a scholar, just on the history of Israel to really keep this all straight. So as I mess some of these things up, just be, you know, be gracious because I can guarantee you it's really, well, you guys know how hard this is. This is not like we are all going to have this memorized when we're done, but we will at least have the... Again, you know, we want to, at the end of this, pull ourselves up and look at the forest, not the trees, right? So that we see the message. These these nations were in contention with Israel when Israel was moving up towards the promised land. That's exactly what I was saying. Some of them wouldn't let them pass through, right? right? Some of them would actually attack them. So it says, Edom, who was this also, was the, that was the people group in Mount Seir, being the landmass, they acted, it said what? How did they act toward them? Vengeance against the house of yeah. Judah. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Taking vengeance. Okay, so we see this is the reason why God is handling these people. The last one is the Philistines. And we've heard about the Philistines a lot. Who's the most famous Philistine we all know? 
Goliath, <laughs> big old Goliath. And how, what did the Philistines do? Again, same thing, acted uh, in revenge and scorn. And what was their ultimate goal? To do what to them? To, to destroy them. So they acted to destroy them. Right. It did, and I know I've told you this before, but when I went when I went to Israel, this is the one thing that I saw in present day Israel today is how complacent they are about the sharing of land masses and uh, properties, and there'll be a mosque right next door to a synagogue, and and I remember specifically how it shocked me when our our bus driver and tour guide said, see, see how gracious we are? And I thought, I wouldn't be proud of that if I, I didn't say it. I, I did have some restraint, but I thought, I wouldn't be proud of that if I was you. I mean, God said, utterly destroy them off the face of the earth, and then you would not have this infiltration. Now what they have is enemies within the camp, and they are having trouble after trouble after trouble. Can you see how that has an impact about our understanding then about the end of the age when we enter not into the millennial kingdom here on the earth but into the new heaven and the new earth? What will be there and what is not allowed there according to Revelation? Nothing that is evil or vile or sinful will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven, meaning into the eternal kingdom, right? It'll be totally God's people who want to do God's will and want to be obedient to the Lord. And one of the great advantages we're going to have is we aren't going to be dealing with this flesh. We're going to have a new body in which, yeah, hallelujah. <laughs> yes, because that's what bites us in the rear end every time we turn around, huh? It's kind of yeah. interesting because we have free will now. Yes. We won't have free will then, but we'll be like God who has free will in right. the sense that we won't want to sin. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hope, I hope we, I hope that, that, no, 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 there will be no sin, absolutely, and I'm, I'm just hoping we won't even want to, that it'll be that gone. Well, they are, I don't think there'll even be temptation. Good, well, I hope, I hope you're right. I probably agree with that if I think about that for five seconds, because <laughs> really, well, yeah, no, uh, I mean, I have to think about it, because my brain has to process the whole thing, you know, <laughs> but yeah, because there's going to be no sin in heaven, so obviously... Which Why would there be temptation, you know, right? The temptation is really the, the, the uh, kind of the desire to sin without, you know, before you sin. Right. So, you know, that means it's got to be evil in order right. to be even temptation. That's true. That's true. I love it. One of the things that's interesting, though, is what happens during the millennial reign on the earth is although we, the bride, have come, we're now in our glorified bodies, there's going to be, for us, a measure of freedom from all that, that the, that many of the others still living in their flesh will not have. But um, who is bound for that thousand years? Satan. Satan is. And yet, what happens at the end of thousand years? He comes back. Right. Yeah. And all these people come up against Jerusalem. So what has happened on the face of the earth, even though Satan has been bound for a thousand years? People are still sinning. So you can't totally blame it. I love the old, what was his name? Flip Wilson. 
the devil made me do it, right? Well, we can't totally blame the devil because sometimes we do it to ourselves, right? Our own little flesh problem. So those of us in the glorified body will definitely have that great advantage. But there are going to still be those on the earth in that time that won't have that dealt with. But aren't you looking forward to the eternal kingdom? When we're done with that, that's going to be a thing. And can you imagine the amazing, glorious things that we will be able to do freed from the flesh and that, and that evil desires that keeps coming up and getting us, right? I just want to go. Let's go now. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> okay, and they will know that I am Lord. All right, so let's, let's go on in and talk about So that was in chapter 25. Okay, so now let's go to chapter 26. All right, let's look at... Um, this is a prophecy, right? Who, what, who is it a prophecy against? Prophecy against Tyre. All right. And this is Tyre uh, specifically talking about the city of Tyre, correct? Yes. The geographical place of it. All right. So what, what happens in the unfolding of this part of the message to them? Would it, well, just kind of take a look at your uh, paragraph titles and tell me the flow of thought that you see going on here. What is the first, the first six? Uh, okay, they, they do celebrate it. And, and when he talks about how he's going to judge them for doing that, that's the because behind it, right? That's the why. What did they do? They, again, just like these others, they were celebrating and rejoicing. So it's like the same old story, right? They're all happy that Israel... Would you say there are nations in our world today that would be really happy if Israel just fell into the sea? Have we not heard people actually still asking for that from those same nations that we're talking about right now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and actually, it's almost like he used the very thing by which they sinned. Do you remember earlier about Oblaha and Alhala? Right, the sisters, <laughs> Samaria and Jerusalem. <laughs> and when they sinned against the Lord, they they lusted after these different kingdoms to become a harlot, basically, to them and do what God told them don't do. Don't go into business with them. Don't let your children marry their children. Don't seek after their false worships and their God systems. And, and instead, they did all those things. And then what did God do? He let those very nations, they lusted after do what? Come and get them and judge them. Wow. Have you ever seen that happen in your own life? Where the very thing that you were sinning in God concerning is the one thing that will come back and bite you in. Happens. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, but the good thing is that here's the good news about it, though, for us. If you'll, if you'll be trained by God's discipline, and you brought this up yesterday, Craig, what would have happened if Israel would have been listening to these prophets? What if they had turned? They'd have stayed in their own country. What did God say to them early, in one of our earlier lessons about don't resist Nebuchadnezzar, don't resist the captivity, if you will just submit to my discipline, what will happen? What can happen? You, you know where it is. I think Craig knows where it is. Hold on. Uh, Jeremiah 
That's right. And not only will he stay on, will I allow you to stay on the land, but I will also do what? If you will pray to me and pray for they, they your conquerors, uh, protection and blessing, if you will pray for them, then what will I do? Sometimes, oh boy, is this one applicable to all of us. Do you have someone in your life that is a thorn in your side but that may be a discipline to you that God is really saying to you, if you will just submit to this discipline that I'm giving you, I am disciplining you right now because of bad choices or bad behavior or a heart attitude, whatever it is. I mean, everybody's got things. I know we all have stuff going on. So if, if God is saying to you and I, then look, Katie, this is happening right now. And if you will be, disciplined by me if you will submit to my discipline then what will i do to you you. he will bless not only was going to bless me he'll even bless the the person that's you know thwarting over me but in that moment he says and then later i will deal with them because why what did we learn earlier about each man being accountable to god Every single human being individually in every nation, God says, is accountable to God. And everyone would be dealt for his own sin. So the process for you and I in what we're seeing here with this is that there's a, there can be an opportunity to learn from discipline. And, and it's not fun at the moment. But as Hebrews says, but it will produce a harvest of righteousness for those who will be trained by it. Right? I'm going, thank you, Lord. And I'm so thankful that he's not done disciplining me, that he keeps working on me. Because of all things and above all things, regardless of how difficult my disciplines are in my life sometimes, I also need to glorify God. That should be my highest calling, right? Above all things, that should be my desire. So I look at these kingdoms and I think, oh my goodness, you know, Israel, if you had just submitted underneath the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar, things could have gone so much better for you. Yeah. It's true of all the other nations, too. Yes. Jeremiah 27, 11. Okay. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon there shall it is. serve him. I will not remain on its land, declares the Lord, and they will till it and dwell in it. There you go. That's the 29, 11? 27, 11. Okay, I'm going to write that up here. Jeremiah 27, 11. That's the big if. If you will be disciplined by the Lord, then you would be able to stay upon the land. I've got to write that one in my paper. <laughs> Don't let me forget. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. I just keep thinking about what you said about whatever going on in Israel right now. And that picture of that last week. Yes, you know, which we all greatly enjoyed, and so did the evening class thing. Okay, but, but I'm just thinking, can they read the Old Testament? <laughs> okay, well... Margaret, you know, it's a valid question. How can, how can people be so blind? Do you have anyone in your life that you have witnessed to and witnessed to and witnessed to? And they live in America where it's so clear, where we don't even have the problem of Judaism to try to defend, right, as our cultural basis. In America, it's primarily Christianity is the dominant uh, religion, although there are people who argue about that. But the fact is we are founded as a Christian nation. And so that is the root of who we are. And yet still, even in our nation, are there not people who still are that resistant? Oh, 
and that blind to not seeing truth. When we, ha- as we have looked at, even in just Ezekiel, the things that God said, thus I will do, thus saith the Lord, this is how it will happen, this is my prophecy against them, and now it's been fulfilled, what does that tell you? Should you be able to believe God's word? If you obey me, God will bless you. Yes. And God does what? He keeps his word. He does as he said. Can we then believe because of fulfilled prophecy that is written in God's word, can we then believe that God's word on the whole is true? What does that then take you to a next step of then? If you're a person who doesn't believe, but now you've been convinced that God's word is true, he did fulfill it, and therefore it's truth. So then you look at the other passages that says, if you will believe on me, then you shall be saved, right? And he who does not have the son does not have life. What does this tell you that you would want to do then? If you come to a place where you look at God's word and go, wow, these things were written, God said it, and he did it, it's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. So you've got to what? Bow your knee. Yeah. But yet, do, they, do, do, do all, all people do that? No. So what's the problem? Well, I, I had a missionary one time tell me that um, it's easier to convert Muslims than it is a Jewish people in the Middle East. What about Christians? How about Americans? Well, you don't know what the relation? Okay. Yeah, I don't know that relationship, but it goes back to Romans again, though. But Paul sure. They're stiff-necked. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and I also see that not just the partial hardening, but that the fact that what God is doing is allowing them by the sovereignty of his hand where, he, where we have seen, as we've seen in Daniel and here, he raises up kings and he puts them down. Yes. Is he not doing that? Boy, we can go right into Daniel, right into Ezekiel and say, there he is raising them up and putting them down. Daniel, who wrote in the same time frame as this prophet. So there, there they, Daniel went into that uh, first captivity. Ezekiel went into the second, right? So as... As we see God's sovereign hand in this, we see how God's word is true. Why can't people see then? It has to be the heart. It has to be just a resistance on the individual's part. What you're laughing? What? I don't know why. I was saying, why do people not think it's true? I think it's because of Old Testament scholars. <laughs> well, you know, James, that's probably true. You know, that is really well, true. Scholars say that, like Ezekiel and all these prophecies and so forth, were written. Right. I can tell you one of the most dangerous things sometimes are study Bibles with all those footnotes, which are totally wrong. And I see it happen over and over. People go, well, but it says right here. And I'm like, yeah, but it's wrong. (laughs) And you hate to be arrogant. And I don't want to be arrogant. I want, you know, really genuinely, I just want them to understand just because some man wrote that down for you and put it in your Bible does not mean that he got the right answer on it. Is he violating known doctrine in any way, right? Does it hold true through, through, through the whole counsel of God's word? And if it doesn't, then you need to just put, take your pencil and X it out and move on and say it's not true because it violates known doctrine. That way, God says you need to test the spirit. Yeah, absolutely. So as precept students then, here we are. Are we being Ezekiel's and protecting God's word and saying, yes, but this is what God's word says. He says this, this is the doctrine. So when you read something and it looks like it's saying something else, what are you supposed to do with it? 
just either dis, dis, well, what you need to disregard is disregard your, your thought on what you thought it said. You have to look at it and say, okay, now wait a minute. That conclusion violates no doctrine, therefore that's not what it means. So now I have to refigure it and say, then what does it mean? Does that make sense? So that's our discipline of doing this method of study. It's not to make us arrogant. It's not to make us to be a know-it-all. But some of those commentaries written in your Bible, in your footnotes, you just be careful with them, examine them, and ask those questions. Does, does it violate known doctrine, and does it fit the context of the book that I'm looking at? Is it, a, is it, a, is it accomplishing the author's purpose, their conclusion? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And your known doctrine. And you know what I mean by known doctrine is that which on the whole is established and that which you adhere to. Sometimes, though, we even forget what our known doctrines are. We forget to ask the question, well, if I believe that about this verse, then the doctrine says that this is how it is. So is that doctrine correct? You got to think about it for a minute and go, hmm. Oh, yeah, I believe that's true. Well, then now you got to go back and look at that verse and say, okay, then that doesn't mean that. It has to mean something else. Are you following the reasoning? It's just an, it's an, it's a, what we call critical thinking. You have to go through and, and critically ask the que- who, what, why, when, where kinds of questions about the passage. Lay it against your plumb line of known things that are absolutes about who is God, who is man, what is sin, how do you get saved, when do you get, you know, what is the, that process, who does, who doesn't. All the, I mean, you just got to ask a million questions about it. But that's your known doctrine. And then second to that is your immediate context rules for interpretation. So you have to see what is the author in that section speaking on, in the flow of thought and what, is, and what is his intention. So what is the author's purpose in that book? If I come to that conclusion about that statement there, does it fit the author's purpose in his writing? So those are some, it just takes a lot of work. That's why inductive Bible study is tough. But it's so good for us. You know? All right, so let's move on. So we see a prophecy in 26 against Tyre. Oh, that's a bad marker. Not working well. Throw that one away. Oh, yeah. There we go. (laughs) Much better. Okay, so the first one is he, what does he say is going to happen in 1 to 6 of 26? How is God going to deal with? with this nation, Tyre. Yeah. Many nations, and there's an imagery in there. What is the imagery? Yeah, as the sea. And how do waves come? All at once? No. No. Little by little. And and sometimes bigger and bigger, and for sure, continual, right? Just the waves, right? Until the end, basically, right? So this tells us then that that the the way God is going to deal with Tyre is progressively over time, right? And so we see then the first wave is given to us in 7 through 11. And who is the first wave that's going to take care of Tyre? Nebuchadnezzar, exactly. And he names him by name. Isn't that nice? That makes it so much easier than trying to guess. So Nebuchadnezzar first, and we know historically what happened when Nebuchadnezzar came against Tyre. What did he take of her? What, what part of her did he destroy? What does it say in there? Verse 6, it says a key word. You should have it marked. The mainland. Did you catch that? Because we know that at that time in history, where was the rest of Tyre's, the capital part of it, the, the major city part of it? 
on an island out in the water, right? So he couldn't get to it. He wanted to, but at that time in history, they were unable. However, what he did do is he took care of the mainland. That, and that's exactly what he tells us here. And when you go back and look at history, that's exactly what he did. Isn't that cool how history sh- proves that the word of God is true? So this was written before it occurred, and then it occurred, correct? So that was 7 to 11. Then in 12 to 14, do you see the word also? So now you know we, get, we have a, n- a new section, so make sure you've marked or circled or highlighted in some way that word also at, the ver- at 12, the first word in 12. And then it says they. Who's the they? Not Nebuchadnezzar. They, huh? Well, we know, yes, if you did your homework research, you come to find out that they is talking about later in history, it's going to be Alexander the Great. But as you're looking at the, the um, flow of this, the they is the nations that are going to come wave by wave by wave. So they, the nations, will do what? Make a spoil of your riches. Now, Nebuchadnezzar didn't fully do that, did he? Because their major riches were where? In the temple. Out in the, on that island, right? Yeah, out on the island. Nebuchadnezzar only got to the mainland, correct? Okay, that, uh, the only reason I know this, because that's what the commentaries were saying, and I looked at a multitude of them. They all said the same thing. So we know that that was happened. Um, what we were, you know, one of the things that I wrote on my, my notes in here was, this is Yahweh's patient and powerful sovereignty. He is nation by nation by nation going to deal with Tyre. And I ended up with a whole list of them, by the way, on this, the suggestions in one of the commentary things that gave me a thing. It talks about, we have, of course, Babylon and then Greece, Right. We have Persians, we have Macedonians, we have the Ptolemies, we have the Seleucids, and then we have the Romans. They all came against her. Until at this point in history, what's left of her? Pretty much nothing. So as, it, as you come to the end of it, he says, um, when I make you a desolate cities, like the cities which are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit. To the people of old. Now, this is a very interesting statement. What is that talking about, the pit and the people of old? Yeah, it's talking about Hades and Sheol. We just talked about that in our, in our uh, community group this week, about the, this place called the pit or Sheol. And it says, and I will make you dwell in the lower parts of the earth. That's, the, that's what Christ said when he, when he descended from the cross. He said to the man on his side, today you should be with me in paradise, right? He went to that place of Sheol in the belly of the earth, Matthew tells us. And he was there for how long? Three days and three nights before he resurrected and, and appeared to who? Mary on Easter Sunday morning. That's what we call it now, Easter. Of course, a lot of people don't like that title, but nonetheless, we call it Easter. So it's Easter Sunday morning. He, he appears to her. And what does he say to her? Oh, you are so good. Star for the day, my pupil. Therefore, I do not touch me there because I've not yet ascended to the Father. He ascends to the Father and then he returns. So this is the pit that's being spoken of here. This place called Sheol. Okay, so you can write Sheol right there on your piece of paper if that helps you a lot. And if not, you could have done a, a word study. And your word study would have, would have also taken you to that same construction. 
It's a it's called a pit for for, for a pit for prisoners, right? And he says um, um, twenty one is really pivotal. I will bring terrors on you, and you will be no more. Though you will be sought. Do you think there's been generations who have tried to revive Tyre and make her to be like she was before? What was she like before? She was rich. Yeah, she was a merchant. She was prosperous. She had peoples flocking to her. She was like a god, she says in the next chapter, right? And so she was really at the top of the pecking order as far as uh, international affairs and wealth and prosperity and, and prestige, correct? Has she ever returned to that? No. no. Isn't that interesting? Well, Even though she will be sought. Down, go well, sometimes you can, because sometimes God can, can... If it were God's sovereign will for her to be fully restored, she could be, but right. he says here, you will, you're gonna, it's going to be sought for you, but you will never be found again, declares right. the Lord. Okay, so that's in 26. So that takes us through 26. Now we're ready for 27. Did you see how much we wrote? Whoa. <laughs> are, you, are you impressed I can do that? <laughs> I, there's lots of notes on my sheets for you, however, okay? The last one is uh, in 27. Before we get into our major section over here, is um, what do you, how did you title 27. This one's pretty simple and straightforward. It's called what? There you go. It's so cut and dry. It's a lamentation over Tyre. So what is a lamentation again, just for review? It's It's a cry of mourning, and it's generally in what form for the Jews? A song. It's usually, they call it a dirge. It'd be like a, a funeral dirge where they would, pre, where they would sing this, these words or sing these songs. And in doing so, as they sing these dirges, uh, lamenting and mourning over the, the passing of this great city, th- then they go th- progressively through it and recant all the things that happened, right? And how sad it was. But in there, what we see is the problem, right? What did she say about herself in verses 1 to 3? Yeah, I am perfect in beauty, right? Whoa. Okay, now wait a second. This is a problem. What would you call that? Pride. Pride. (laughs) Big time pride, one through three. And then, but this is interesting to me is the way they they make a little bit of a turn in four to nine. Who is it that has actually helped her to become what she has become, and yet she's taking all the glory on it? All these places. Did you notice how many green... I don't know if you do, I used to do a green double underline under all my geographical locations, right? And so, I mean, golly, there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 40, 50. I mean, it goes on and on. There's a bunch of them, right? So it's not like she got there on her own. But somehow she thinks she is so beautiful and like she did it all herself somehow. What does it say about the builders? What have the builders done for her? And the builders of the nations made her perfect, right? They have perfected your beauty. So in a way, it's like there's a double message in this, in this segment here where they're saying on the one hand, she's taking all the glory for who she has become. On the other hand, she really should be thanking all the nations around her that have made her who she has become. Doesn't she sound like Babylon? Oh, who said that? <laughs> 
Margaret, you, you need to go back there and talk to uh, Kathleen because Kathleen and I were talking about that just before class. She said, why didn't Kay take us into Babylon and show us Babylon? Why do you think Kay didn't take us to Babylon in Revelation? Was that 18, 19, somewhere in there? Oh, yeah, there you go. Thank you, Margaret. It's a whole nother lesson. But, oh, yes, if you want to see a parallel, go into the, the, the passages in Revelation. I think it's in 18 or 19, 17 or 18, something like that. Huh? 17 and 18. Are those the two? And those two are the great city Babylon of the, at the end of the age and how she, just like Tyre, aren't I glorious? Aren't I beautiful? I am so awesome, right? And then, of course, God takes her down. So it's a really good parallel. 10 and 11, he he's, uh, gives an insight about those who also make her, give her her strength. And, and here it uses the word splendor, right? Who does that for her? Persia, light, and color. Yeah, and, and, in what, and in what regard are they called? The, arm, the armies. Yeah, your men of war, right? They set forth your splendor. They have perfected your beauty. Why? Because what have they done for her? Given her protection, physical protection. So the warriors of, the, of that time who came in some kind of alliance or agreement or were getting mutual benefic- benefit from her, they came alongside to give her, her physical protection. And so they also had a hand in it. And yet, what is she saying? Look at me, right? No, no benefit to the ones. It's kind of like baseball. And who seems to get all the glory? The pitcher. But who else is on the team? A whole bunch of other. And that would include me who was out in right field, <laughs> right? And no glory for the right fielder. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, and then 12 to 25, what do we see happen there with her? This is the dirge about her. What happens? Why did all these people flock to her? Merchant. Did you see the word merchandise? Did you mark that? And there was another keyword. What was the other keyword in there? Customers, traders, and merchants, okay? And you can kind of put those all in to, to, together because the, they kind of assimilate the same thing. But did you see another word? Abundance. Abundance of... I, I remember living overseas in Turkey, and we had this little tiny commissary over there. And when I would come back to America on vacations that we would come... We only came a couple times through the course of those, those years. But we would come... And we would literally stand in the store and just be frozen because we did, we were overwhelmed by how much abundance America has. And just and my husband to this day still hates the grocery store. He goes and he goes, <laughs> I can't find it. There's like, you know, I need this cereal, honey. And there's a row this long <laughs> of all these cereals that he's high knees looking. Where is it? You know, abundance. This is what this nation was all about. They had an abundance and these these traders, these merchants, these, these customers basically of her, they were the ones who came and bought her wares. And therefore, what, it, what were they as far as g- gaining or giving to her her beauty, right? And did she give them any credit? No. No, all the credit is hers. And it says about the, those same merchants, however, in 26 to 36, what will they do? And not only them, not only the traders, but the ones before, the, the warriors, and before that, the other nations who um, 
built her, her perfection, what would they do? Yeah. In tw- look at 27. With all your company that is in your midst, um, it speaks about all of them. On the day that you are overthrown, in verse 32 it says, they will do what? They will wail and take up a lament. So I titled that all will weep when you are overthrown. All these nations who were, all, who were actually supporting you and building you up, those whom you didn't even give credit to, whom you said it's all your beauty, all your doing, but yet th- they will mourn when she goes down. Yes, they did. They sure did. Okay, so 27 is in, by title what? Mm-hmm. A lamentation over Tyre. So that's what that whole thing is about, a lamentation. So that was the title there. Our title up here in 25, we didn't give it one. What did you title 25? Pretty simple. Oh, judged because? Yeah, okay. Judgment on the nations of Judah. All right. Or, okay. And if we want to kind of go along with the, the idea of this prophecy for a flow of thought, you could also say not, you could say either judgment or you could say a prophecy against. Both are this, they mean the same thing, right? Okay, so here we got a prophecy against. And then it's going to be all those nations, right? Right. So there's my title there. Um, you could. It gives some specific names here, so you could use that. But you could just say, yeah, you could, if you wanted to, just say prophecy against the nations. That would sure shorten it. You're smart. That was good, Carol. I wish I'd had you around when I was figuring it out. <laughs> See, that's where you get the help of your friends when you're trying to title these. Okay, so now we are ready to move into Ezekiel 28 because this one is, again, a, a similar title to this one, correct, in 28, the beginning of it? It is a lamentation, correct? Did you see that lamentation word come up again in 28? And in this case, it says it's a lamentation for who? The king of, of Tyre, right? Lamentation. Yeah, what I want you to know, though, I agree with you on that, and I was going to fix it, but he, and, and I'll erase it here just to, to make sure that it makes it clear. However, you have to have a title for the book on the whole, right? And who gets preven- presented first over here is who? The leader. The leader, right? And what we have come to see through the wonderful um, guidance of precept and the way they laid out this curriculum is to see that there's a distinction between the one who's called the leader and the one that is called the king, correct? So we're going to iron that out. But when we're completely done with this, 28 on the whole needs a title, right? And what you're going to come to see is how one of, of these affects the other and in essence unites them in a way, okay? So we're going to talk about that. Let's start with the leader.
Okay, so there's our, our title. Whoops, I forgot. Let me be consistent here. There's our title for chapter 28. Okay, so now we know where we're at. Let's start with the leader. Now, I don't know, did you guys do very many word studies by chance? Oh, darn. Okay, I did pages of word studies, which was, uh, I was talking, I think it was Carol that I was saying to her that one of the things that really helps you in this segment, and she didn't give it to you in the homework, and I understand why, because there was so much more to do. I mean, we were already overwhelmed with, with four chapters to try to cover. But your word studies are really, really helpful in this segment, particularly when we get to the king of Tyre as opposed to the leader of Tyre. However, knowing what these words are along the way are still really helpful. I'm not going to touch on all of them. I'm just going to let you know the words that I looked up, and you might be interested in going back and looking them up. Okay, what does he say? Say to the leader what? Yeah, thus says the Lord God, and yeah, he tells us about him. His heart is lifted up. So I looked up that word, lifted up. What do you think that meant? Exalted. Very good. Who looked that one up? Okay, so it means exalted. To be lofty, to be haughty, to be arrogant, exalted or arrogant. And that is what we saw over here, wasn't it? I'm so beautiful, I'm so great. All right, what else do we learn about him? He says, I am a God. Mm-hmm. He said, then there's basically three things he said. Number one, I am a God. It's, did you notice it's a little g? Right. I am a God. So when you look up the word God... What do you think the conclusion of that is? Is this speaking of Yahweh? No. Not necessarily, but it's speaking of what? A supreme being. A divinity. A, a, a deity of some kind. So, a deity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Are godlike. See, you guys did do some word studies, didn't you? I am a God. Okay. Of course, that one is pretty obvious. Not, not too big of a surprise there. What about uh, the next thing he says about himself? He says, I sit in the seat of God. Okay. In the seat of God. Now, what does that mean? Oops, I got to fix that. In the seat of God's. And it's Plural. Yes. I like that word, strange God, because it's, a, it's not the God, it's a strange God. That's good. For a period of time, and then his jealousy will set in, right? And then he will deal with them. Yeah. You know, it's, it is pretty interesting, because if you think about it, did, does God have to put up with this? No. He could just step in and do what? Destroy it. Gone with a word. He spoke this world into existence. He could speak it out, 
right? But he doesn't. Why? Yet. Yet. Thank you. Because why? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. I like the way she said that. She said he has the heart of a father. Do you, ha- do you have children in your life that are wayward or disobedient or are, are totally disappointing you in any way, and yet you're not willing to give up on them? That is the, f- the father heart or the mother heart, right, that just keeps saying, I know they look like they're rotten to the core, but I'm not giving up, right? Because why? That's who, that's who we are. What are we in the image of? God the Father, we are to represent that same image to the world around us and particularly to your own family, right? So he shares, yes, exactly. So he shares that title for a period of time. He says, I sit in the seat of God's. Now, what does that mean, though? I sit in the seat of God's. The seat is the word I looked up. It is. It's a throne just in case you didn't know that. It's speaking of, I sit upon a throne. Um, And it actually, in the word study, actually took me to Ezekiel 28.2, and it says, a chair of a king as a representation of his power. So it's a place of power, right? Throne, seat of power. Okay? All right, so no surprises really yet. Let's keep moving. Three. The last one he says about himself, what? Yeah, that's interesting. I sit in the heart of the sea. Now, what does he mean by that one? And that itself is a, is a full statement. It's pretty much, it's like a phrase or a, it's a, it's a word in and of itself almost, the whole phrase. Well, that's a good point. It isn't exact. It doesn't totally fit, fit here, but you're right in what you're, where, where your mind has gone because the sea sometimes represents the nations, right? And so he's saying about himself, I sit in the heart of the sea. He doesn't say the seas as in all the, the world, but we know that literally uh, uh, Tyre was in the, in the ocean, right? So there was a physicalness to it, but it also has a spiritual side to it too. In the fact that he sat in the sea where he did geographically, positionally. What did we just see in the lamentation before about the merchants and the warriors and the people who came in support of this nation? How powerful was it? Very. It was highly exalted in the world of that time. So when he says, I sit in the heart of the seas, he's saying about himself what? He's almost thinks he... Do you see the God-like thinking on this? This is that little God in him. He says, I am the most important thing out there. I'm the best thing going. That's what he says again. (laughs) Yeah, so there's that arrogance again coming out in it. He says, basically, it's a... my, My commentary is where I finally went to to get the best insight on this. It says, as God sits enthroned, he sits enthroned, secure an impregnable stronghold, able to control at his will and to make others serve his interests, a superhuman elevation of himself that thinks himself as if he were God. 
wow, that's a, that's a pretty good one, huh? You'll get it on your notes, <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> so it's a super human elevation, basically, of the reality, which is you are, what does God say in contrast? You are what? A man and not God. Oh, yeah, does this ever... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here we have it's a superhuman elevation of himself. And, God, and where was the verse that says, and you are not, you are a man and not a God? Verse 2. Verse two. Okay, so there's my contrast statement there. So he says, I sit in the heart of the sea, and that's also in verse 2. And at the end he says, but you're not. You're just a man, right? So he had not, did not have a good perspective on, on the reality, yeah, right? Yeah. And he goes on to say more things about himself, like, um, what does he make his heart out to be? Like the heart of God. Meaning, basically what? Now, he explains it in verses 3, 4, and 5, kind of, but really in 3 and 4 especially, but 3, 4, and 5. He says, yeah. Now, interesting, wiser than Daniel. Where did Daniel get his wisdom? From God. So what does that mean he's thinking he's wiser than? Wiser than God. Wiser than God. <laughs> uh, no secret is a match for you. By it you have acquired riches. By its use have you, you have increased your riches, right? Mm-hmm. So in the end, then in verse 5, he says, what happens? Is, is John using sarcasm here? Yes. Oh, yeah. I think so. It's very sarcastic. He said, look, you think you're wiser. There's no secret that's a match for you, Mr. Tyre. By it, you've acquired riches. By its use, you have increased your riches. And yet he did not once say thank you, thank you, thank you to his customers, to those who supported him, those who were around him. Neither did he either turn to Yahweh and say thank you, God, because according to Daniel's prophecy, who raises up kingdoms and puts them down? Who puts men into their positions of power and who brings them down? He wasn't recognized. That is exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when God dethroned him and he spent seven years in the field eating like the cattle, right? Yeah. All right. So we have here, um, uh, your heart is what? Is lifted up all right so and lifted up means what exalted again it's that arrogance all right so that lays the first section for us this takes us all the way through um it looks like i'm going we can go into the therefores but I'm going to skip that part, if you guys don't mind, so we can get into the king of Tyre and have time to go through him thoroughly. Because he tells us, therefore, I'm going to do what? I'm going to bring you down to the pit. Now, when you, do, when you do your word study on the pit, if you haven't done one, you want to. That's in verse 8. Again, the pit is mentioned. This is the yes. second, third time or so that the pit is mentioned. It is the word um, S-H-A-C-H-A-T-H. You'll see it. It's number 7845. Pit, destruction, grave. Uh, pit as of Sheol. 
And then in my next dictionary I have, it's the grave, Sheol, formerly the pit, a state of death and the place of the dead. And we all know that. Those of yes. us who've done our studies on Sheol before and, the, and Hades, right? That's the same place. That's what this pit is that he's speaking of here. Okay. All right. So now let's go to the next part. This is the part where I do want to go through some of these word studies. It's going to be helpful, I think. Um, all right. So... What do we see about this lamentation now? Where he says, so now I want you to lament. And he doesn't say, I want you to lament over who? Don't lament over who? Over the king of Tyre. The leader, but rather lament over this, the king of Tyre. Isn't it interesting how in the middle of the flow of conversation, he now says, I want you to lament, and you're to lament over this. Uh, And it's like there's a distinction. He does switch the title of it. He switches from from the usage of the word leader in those first 10 verses, to the worst, uh, use of king, yeah. right? Higher. However, if you do word studies, they're similar. They're both rulers, correct? Yeah. Okay, so now what we need to do then is try to identify, since there's been a, a word switch in this segment, we need to say, well, is there a distinction in these two? And what we know, by the way, Kay laid out the homework, is obviously there is. And so we need to see it for ourselves, what this distinction is. What did he say about this king of Tyre? Okay. Okay, that is in verse 12. So what does the seal of perfection mean? Perfect. Perfectly fitted, perfectly prepared for that which he was created and designed to do. Perfect... um, it goes on to the next ver- part of it, and it says perfect in what way also? Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So that's also in verse 12. There, I looked up the word perfect. I looked up the word seal and perfection in those, in those passages. The word perfect there says complete, pertaining to a complete degree of an attribute of beauty. I just think it's interesting. Um, especially when we get down and we see in verse 14 how, what, who he's called, and then we think back on what we've looked at already, and we go, beauty? It's kind of scary if you ask me, but beauty, okay. Verse uh, 13 says, where was he? In Eden, the garden of God. Now, what do you think this Eden is speaking of here? Did we look in the garden of Eden? Okay, when you look it up, it is Eden, the first habitat of man after the creation. Okay, it's the garden of Eden or the garden of God, yes. Yes, very, oh, that's a good contrast. That is a good, yeah, he was making, this leader was saying, I am perfect. Over here, God was saying, when I created you, you were perfect. Interesting. And that's going to be even more profound when we go, when we get into some doctrinal conversation here. 
Okay, so let's look at the next point. He says about him, what, in verse 13? Every precious stone was your covering. Okay, every precious yeah, I, I know. I got it wrong. <laughs> my my dyslexia is going on. P R. Mm-hmm. Every precious stone. Sometimes I get my letters backwards, and I I just I know what it's supposed to be, and then it doesn't happen. Okay, and it talks about gold of your settings, right? Okay, and it was in you when? He talks about this. Every precious stone was your covering, and gold of your settings and sockets was in you. When? On the day that you were created. Mm-hmm. On the day. There's another contrast here with the leader of Tyre. He, he gained his riches through creating Yeah, and in this, he was, he was given them. He was created and designed with his precious stones. You're right. That is a good one. And he speaks about these precious stones. They were prepared for you on the day that you were created. Right? On the day you were created, they were prepared for you. Okay. Now, this is really interesting. I'm just going to circle this. What do we see or underline it for you here? So first of all, what we know here is whoever this is, this is a created being. Now, certainly we can say that all of us are created beings of God, right? So if you're trying to determine who this king is at this point, it's, it's not totally understood yet, but this next point is going to help, I think, start to narrow it down a little bit for you because he says in verse 14, who is he? You are anointed. <laughs> oh, whoops, you were the anointed cherub. Now, what do we know about a cherub? He's an angel. Yeah. Who covers. And I placed you there. And I placed you there. There where? On the holy mountain of God. On the holy mountain of God. Now, what do we know about the cherubs from previous study in this book? Where are the cherubs visually seen? They're, what it refers to as covering, what are they covering? Over the tabernacle. Yeah. So he was created by God. He was created in perfection and beauty. And he was placed in his place as a covering, right? And I placed you there, he said, God says of him. And he says, and I placed you there. And so when he speaks about the anointed cherub, then what we need to know about that cherub is he's speaking of what? What is the cherubs? What do we know about the cherubs? What have we seen about the cherubs in chapter 1? Yeah, all those wheels and all those eyes and all the... uh Uh-huh. So he's a cherub... Just like the cherubs that, if you're going to remember, context rules for interpretation. So you, what you want to do is you want to say, is this word used anywhere else in Ezekiel, right? Because there'll be a consistency then in the, in the use of it. So you can go back to the earlier references to it. In, I think it's in chapter 1 and 10, if I'm not mistaken. Is 10 the other one? Okay, good. So those are the two chapters, and you can go back and look at it. If you want to have a better 
visualization of what you think this Satan, or I'm sorry, this cherub looks like. Sorry. Everybody knows where we're going. That he is this anointed cherub. This, this, what he looked like, he was the one that was created. And when he was created, he was created in beauty and perfection at the beginning, right? All right. So he's an angelic being. Just as we've seen in chapter 1 and 10, right? All right. So he also tells us about him. Where was he geographically? You are on the holy mountain of God. And he says he also walked somewhere. In the midst of the stones of fire. Oh, my goodness. Right. So you go back to those first chapters, particularly in chapter 10, and it talks about in the center of them there was this fire and what the man in linen was went into the midst of them and removed from them fire right and he was to bring it out and cast it over the city do you remember that part Mm -hmm. of that the the visual so here he is you walked in the midst of the stones of fire he was on the holy mountain of god it was back in the beginning when he was created he was prepared as a covering he is an angelic being are we talking about a human man no, we are not. So uh, all you have to do is do your word study. If you just drop into Ezekiel, you might have some trouble. But if you've studied Ezekiel in this flow of thought where we are right now, we know what the cherubs are. It's one of the things that Daniel actually uses as, a, as like an emphatic statement. If I knew who this was, that it was God over Israel, because he's recognized the cherubim. Right? And so he used the cherubim as his proof text to say that I knew it was God because of the cherubim. And we've already established who the cherub are in this book. These are the angelic beings. And that these are the ones specifically then that they hover over God. They're in God's presence and they're over the ark of of the covenant. Right? All right. So you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. In verse 4. These are in verse 14. All right, they were prepared for you with verse 13. Make sure I get my proof text up there for you. Oh, now here's a really good one. You were blameless. And then the word until comes along. Until what? Until unrighteous. Okay, and he said, and then you were filled internally with violence and you sinned. Yes. Therefore, I have cast you as a profane. I'm going to see if I can get both of these. So you can go to 15 and 16 for the totality of that. I really super shortened it. You were blameless until unrighteousness was found in you. So what is the word blameless talking about? What's the contrast to it? What happens afterwards? You were blameless, and then you, at some point he sinned, correct? Right. Until the day that he sinned. So he was created in perfection, sinless, 
And then at some point he sinned and now he's, he's now cast out. So God, because he says you were created and you were prepared, he said, I placed you in a specific place. He was assigned an abode, right? A place of dwelling that was given to him, a position that he was designed and created for, right? And he was perfect for it, perfectly fitted, perfectly equipped perfectly made for the purpose by which God designed him to be. He was perfect also in that he was sinless at the time of his creation. What does God say at the, at the end of his creation in the, in the Genesis account? And everything that he had created was good, and it was very good. So it's talking about sinlessness. That included Adam and Eve in the beginning, didn't, did it not? Until what happened with Adam and Eve? They also sinned, right? Okay, now, so here's, he says, though, um, I wanted to cover, there it is, the idea that he was blameless. Okay, I'm going to go over here and do this, blameless. If you have to try to convince somebody First of all, I think the easiest, the easiest thing to take him to is that he was a cherub, right? Yeah. So here we have a cherub. Okay. You are the anointed cherub. That alone helps to clarify who he is. But some people just read right past that, right? The other thing is, is that he, he was perfect. Now, if they want to say about this right here, that this is speaking of the leader of Tyre at that time in history right? Where are we in the, in the lineage of history about man in relationship to sin? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That applied then as it does now, right? What, what was the teaching we had in Romans chapter 5 about man's condition when he, the very day he enters, actually at, at his conception for that matter? That's right. Good. You are, you are federally under Adam. There's something called the federal headship of being in Adam. All men are born there. You cannot violate your known doctrine. So if somebody wants to say, no, this king of Tyre is talking about this leader, right? And it's just using imagery because this is a book of prophecy. The problem is, is the word cherub is talking about an angelic being, number one. Number two is saying that you were perfect in beauty, right? That you were blameless without sin. We know this king was not. Correct? Is everybody following me? Impossible for this man to be blameless. He was not blameless. Yes? Well, that's true too. Also, absolutely. That's another good point. That's true. Absolutely. And in the midst of the stones, in relationship to what we know about what's been presented already in the book of Ezekiel, that's talking about in the midst or in the middle of those where those cherubim were, where he reached in and received the fire. Hey, I had a horrible homework time. I should should keep my mouth shut, but it mentioned (laughs) stones of fire twice. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I think because there's already historical, I mean, there's already a recorded record of what's being talked about through the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has already talked about the cherubim a couple of times and given us an insight about what is being talked about there. Now, um, what we do know is this, is if we make a switch at this point and speak about the king of Tyre as being Satan, which is the other option that, that 
it's the one I hold to. It's the one precept holds to. That this is, this is showing you the spiritual warfare that's going on behind the literal man of Tyre. There is a literal man. And these first few verses in, up through 10 are talking about a literal man. But then at, by, when you hit here, did you notice what, what the very first verse is? In, in verse uh, 11, what does it say? Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, so we've got another prophetic word to him. So he got this first word here. I don't know how far in between a day, a few hours, what? I don't know. But we know that this word was given to him here. And now again, the Lord came to him and now he's speaking to him here. So did you notice that? There's a time, a time change. There's a message change. And now what he's doing is, is, I believe he is showing to us the spiritual warfare, the, the supernatural powers which are at work behind the kings and kingdoms of men. We saw this when we were in Daniel. It's why Kay took us into Daniel to show us this and have us known. One of the things, though, before we move off of it, is I want to say that the fact that he is blameless, you have to remember about federal headship. If you're speaking about a man, for mankind himself, the federal headship of in Adam, and that's taught in Romans chapter 5, correct? There's just two verses I want to go to. Somebody look up uh, John 3, 16 to 18, and someone else do for 1 John 5, 12. Who would like to do those for me? So I want, to, I want those read out loud. Okay, she's going to do John 3, 16 to 18. Who will do 1 John 5, 12? Okay, Raquel, thank you. If you guys will look those up and then read them nice and loudly so that everybody can hear them. Because what I'm going to do is just show you a, a, a supporting statement that's showing us that it's, it's impossible for him to be talking about a human being in the days of the king of Tyre that's it, recorded in Ezekiel, that he is considered blameless without sin. Okay, yes. Are there commentaries that try to make the case that this is a man? Um. I think most of them go with the spiritual teaching on this, but there are some who I, I think that don't. You always, what we want to do is say, why have they come to that conclusion? Because if you drop in there in the beginning, um, did any of you have an objection to coming to see that this was speaking about Satan? I didn't look up any commentaries at all on this. Uh-huh. Okay, wow. And when you hit words like this, would that have been a trigger? I mean, I just kind of see it as, because uh, he starts out talking about, I placed you in Eden and stuff like that. And so I kind of feel like, well, this is just kind of a, I guess, an alley. He's using an alley. See, that's exactly, so James did exactly what because, some people do. in the context of. Right, of all the other imageries. He's talking about judging nations. Right. And so. Right. How is Right, exactly. Okay, so that's why. This is exactly why. So, but then I, thus, you look in different commentaries, like, well, we're talking about Satan. And I mean, I'm not saying you can't see it that way. Yeah. But I'm saying emphatically that by doing your word studies and by, by retaining the, the context in which this book has already unfolded, there's already been an established understanding of what an, a cherub is, for one thing. 
Okay, so they wouldn't switch the use of it to imagery. They would have used a different kind of image. Here, he's actually using what's already known to the reading audience, us included, where he's already established in chapter 1 and in chapter 10. And as a matter of fact, Daniel, or I mean um, Ezekiel, actually uses the cherub as his proof text to say, I know it was God most high because of the cherub. So he's already established the known understanding of the cherub. Now he gives us this. Secondly, if that doesn't work for you, these statements about, about that you are blameless, now you're going to go back to your known doctrines. Retain known doctrine. Right? We know that we must maintain this, the standard of known doctrines. That's why I'm saying to you, okay, uh, let's evaluate what's said about him. Even if it's an imagery and he's speaking about the king of Tyre in that present day, correct? If he's talking about king, whatever his name is, Ethabaal or whatever his name was, right? Correct? Uh, somebody look, did somebody find it? Ethbaal? Ethbaal. So if he's talking about... E-T-H-B-A-A-L, however you want to say that word, Ethbaal, and he's the king. Then the problem is, is he's saying he's blameless, right? And, and at this time in history, we've had Adam and Eve, and they have had what? Their fall into sin. Now down here we're at Ethbaal. Okay, and so what you have to do is, what are my known doctrines? Well, Romans 5 explains to us this thing called the federal headship of being in Adam. It started from the days of Adam and has been true throughout history. That, that man is considered dead in his sin because of what Adam did from the day that they uh, committed their sin. That's taught to us in Romans chapter 5, and I don't have time to go there and teach the whole thing. I'm so sorry. We did that in the book of Romans. And if you want a one-on-one class with me on that particular passage, I'd be happy to do that with you, uh, you know, outside of class. But I'm just referring you to Romans chapter 5 to look about where it says, in Adam or in Christ, it's a federal headship move that must take place for a human being to not be federally under Adam. It's basically, it's a judicial law that God set down. And this judicial law had to be set. I always love this. This is like the scales, right? Right? There's a scale. And there's a federal law in Adam or in Christ. And you are either one or the other. God considers you either one or the other. You are not halfway in between. You're not sometimes one and sometimes another. Once you make the federal move to being in Christ, it's once for all, according to Hebrews, right? According to many passages, for that matter. Okay, so you can look in Romans 5 and get your federal headship training out of that chapter. But just to be supportive, let me read these couple of verses to you to show you where else in Scripture it, sh- it supports that in a, in a much clearer way, I think. Um, John three sixteen to 18 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the holy begotten son of God. Okay, so he who has not believed 
is judged already. What happened to Abraham when he believed God? Reckoned as righteous. Same thing. So even though in the New Testament it's belief in that Christ is the Christ, in the Old Testament Abraham was believing on that coming seed who was the Christ, correct? We've already talked about that in our class several times. So according to John three sixteen to 18, he's saying, but if you have not believed, then you are already condemned. Okay, Do you, are, is everyone with me? Okay, now let's go to the next one. 1 John five twelve. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Wow. Right. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son, what? Does not have life. So with those two verses in mind, that basically you, you, are, you are born dead in sin, right? Man is, man is. All right. If that's true, can this man be blameless? You'd have you'd violate your known doctrine to draw, to draw that conclusion that he's actually speaking about this man, the king of Tyre at that time in history, because this federal headship was established from this point right here, says Romans, and that there has to be even right in here in between Abraham believed. And then he was saved. Uh huh. On the leader of Tyre, he calls him a man. God says, You're a man, not God. Yes. In the king of Tyre, he says, You are a cherub. Yes. Man and cherub. There you go. It's not symbolism for a man by calling him a cherub. No. He's definitely talking about somebody else. Yes. That's why I did did this. But I do think that what James is willing to confess, thank you you so much. You are the anointed cherub, boy. And the anointed cherub, anointed means what? Declared for or appointed or... Okay, it doesn't mean declared as in it's not true, but anointed means anointed means empowered or... Um, usually anointing is by the work of the Holy Spirit itself, but it's the... It's, the anointed kings. Kings are anointed to do a specific task. They're assigned to do a certain thing. Right, exactly. So in this case, he was the anointed cherub, and I placed you there, Placed and I placed you there. You were on what? The holy, the holy mountain of God. Was this king on the holy mountain of God? He thought he was. He All through that lamentation back in 27... He said, I am like a God. I'm so beautiful. I'm so whatever. But he was not on the holy mountain of God, right? So he was not. He was not. He was born in sin. He's not perfect or without sin. Right? He's not on the holy mountain. Um, he's not in the Garden of Eden. Where's the Garden of Eden at that point? What has happened in history somewhere before this? (laughs) There was a flood, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know where the Garden of Eden is, unless this is speaking about the Holy Garden of God in the heavenlies. We know that the earth is, has shadows, pictures 
of the things that are re- of a reality, right, in the heavens. Maybe in the heavens there's a, a true garden, a true mountain of God, or a true garden of Eden that is the garden of God in the heavenlies, potentially. But if we just want to make it from where, what our perspective is about it being Eden, what we know is there was a flood between, uh, even before Abraham, but well before uh, Ethel, he was not in the garden, not in Eden, not on God's holy mountain, not, whole, not perfect, but a sinner, right? Federally under Adam. He's not an angelic being. So, I mean, by the time you get to this one, even if you think he's just using imagery here, these things are, are not true either, right? Are you following? Everybody doing okay with this so far? Any questions or any other thoughts? Or, especially when I hear from James, because James, you're the one that was, was being, like you said, you didn't do your homework. So sometimes that's your I first... I Oh, you did do... Oh, thank you, James. Good job. Okay, so he did do his homework. Just because, well, I, you know... I, I did my homework, but I didn't look at commentary. I've, okay. I've purposely not looking at commentary. Good for you. Smart. I'm proud of you. Like you've said, commentaries are made by men. That's right. And so... They can lead you astray. And so, well, and so I've just been kind of glancing at commentaries here while we're talking about it. Okay. And, and this is not a hill I'm willing to die on. Right. Well, at, but at this point, at this point about at this point about this man, I agree with what you're saying about federal headship, all that. Right. With you. Okay. Here, even if it's imagery, was this man ever any of these things? Well, no. But I mean, okay. the imagery could be used to. To be it. symbolically you're, you're talking about Tyre. So you think that, that potentially, potentially that people could say that all these things are talking about Tyre, the city Tyre. Perhaps. 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 Right. I'm not saying you are. I'm just using, Perhaps. I think this is really, I haven't, like I said, it's I so good, you guys, when people will bring up the objections because too often we all agree and what's left to discuss, right? But this is important because we want to be apologetically capable of defending our stand on what we believe and why we believe it and how we came to those conclusions. The more we study, the better we're going to get at being able to explain to somebody why we know that when we hit the king of Tyre, this is not speaking about this same man, that there's something beyond the man that this representation is here. It also starts, the first sentence in this section is, um, uh, Was it the then? Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, right? So here's this. And if you contrast then with the king of Tyre, he says, again, the word of the Lord came to me. So we can assume that this is a fresh thought. Say, you know, he's going down through this text in the last three or four chapters, 
and what he was doing, and then all of a sudden he said he's just switching to images. Yeah, no, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, that's a good point. It does damage to the text. Okay, good. So there's no there's no switch in literary flow, and quite honestly, up up to this right. Okay, there's sto- no statement of vision. This is simply a prophecy. He's saying, speak to the... this case, he's saying, speak a, speak a lamentation. It's rather, no switch in literary phrase, no statement of vision, but it's a lamentation. But the big- and lamentations, by the way, are statements of fact, right? If you're going to sing a dirge at someone's funeral in the, in the historical... There are things which are true about that person. You sing it over them, and it's historically then carried down through the generations. The dirges, which basically the, the Proverbs and the Psalms, right, of Scripture, the Psalms, I guess, of Scripture, are the songs that the Jews sang. There's a, there's a song, let's sing the books of, you know, whatever, right? And, the, the, and it says that they're the songs the Jews sang. So a lamentation is a song that they sang. And it was saying giving literal historical truth, right? It was facts about a man or thing, or in this case, angelic being. Right? Yes, he profaned his sanctuaries. Okay, so now, okay, we can just leave that there, and that will give you guys some things to chew on as far as apologetically how you might want to handle that. I want to go on, though, and talk about the fact that he profaned your sanctuaries. That's a good point that you bring up there. In verse 18, what is that saying that he profaned his sanctuaries? What does it mean to profane your sanctuaries? Polluted. This is the word pollute. Another word would be violate, right? To violate it. Um, it told us earlier that he was created in perfection, but then he sinned. Uh, violence entered in him and he sinned. So in that he violated basically his trust or his position that God had placed. In. It says that God created him. And he prepared certain things for him, and then he placed him in a position. And in that position, as a cherub, he violated his trust. He violated what he was created and designed and placed there to do. Now, historically, if, if we want to play with the idea that this might be Satan, then what we could do is go, do we see any insights in Scripture that say that Satan was cast out of that position Right? That would help to strengthen the potential of Satan being that which was cast out because he profaned the place which he had been assigned. Well, there are a couple of verses that we can go to. Um, John, no, not John. Revelation 12 is one that Kay took us to, right? She, she said in verses 3 and 4, she didn't take you to that one. She took you to the next one. Start with, though, with the one in 3 and 4. Because that's the first introduction to uh, Satan. And we already, if, if you did Revelation, you already know this is speaking of Satan in chapter 12. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Tales took away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that means she gave birth in life to battle. Okay, so what we see is a progression of history here. In verse 4, it tells us about that, that there is this great dragon which is hev- in heaven. Now, is there a verse that tells us about who the dragon is? Is it in, It's in here, right? 9, verse 9, who's the great dragon? Okay, now, there, there are two periods of time. For those of you who didn't, have not studied this yet, there's two times in history, but th- there are insights that you can gain about this. What we see is that there's a time in history in verses um, 9, 10, 11, 12, right there, that God is, at, this is speaking at the end of the age, when God is going to cast Satan down. Do you guys remember where in the timeline of Revelation God ca- casts sa- Satan down? He can no longer come before God the Father and accuse the brethren. At the midpoint of the tribulation, so that's at the, at the three and a half year point, just at the very end. What happens in those last three and a half years? What gets poured out on the earth? The bowls of wrath. That's the time when God passes judgment and the final wrath of God is, is basically poured out. That's when Satan and his angels are cast down to the earth and the wrath of God is poured upon them and... In the meantime, they're still busy about trying to keep people dis, uh, uh, deluded and persuaded in their, in their thinking, or, you know, to basically keep them from coming into faith. But before that, there's another time where it says that this same dragon, it says his tail did what? It swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. In other words, he took with him a third of the stars of, of heaven when he... Uh, was cast from his abode, the abode which God placed him in, that he was supposed to dwell in and not violate. Yes? Well, I think if, if he said one time he was cast down and the next time he was thrown out. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yes, right. There is some distinctive language in there, and when we did Revelation, we were able to really kind of lay it out very, very clearly. But just as a drop-in, you can see that these are two times in history. One time, a third of the angels are swept down. The next time, they are all cast down. Okay, so one point in history, Satan has had a fall, has he not? In Jude chapter 4, it says something in there as well. Let's go to Jude. And Jude is just before Revelation. Jude and then Revelation. And it's only one chapter, so it's kind of hard to find. Okay, and go to verse 4. He's talking about ungodly people and, about, and how they're supposed to beware of the fact that, that rebellion has its consequence. That's what Jude is kind of talking about, God's authority and that the, ungo- the, the ungodly who won't submit what's going to happen to them, right? And he says in verse um, 4, for certain persons, meaning false prophets, false teachers, have crept in unnoticed among the believers, those who were long before him marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe And here's the one I want you to catch, verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, they did not keep their abode, the place in which God 
put them, but rather they profaned it. He says, um, they did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the great day of judgment. So here we see in Jude, it makes a reference to these angels having been cast out. So that's a good historic, couple of good historical markers that show that God had cast out. Some of the angels have been cast out of heaven for their rebellion. So this is the one-third of the stars who fell. Okay? It's a lot to take in. And if this is the first brush through for you that you've never looked at these verses, this can take some, some time. To, you need some time to digest all these. When you get my notes, you'll have more of the exact verses that you can go to. And you can expound on them and, and greatly amplify your insights on this as well. All right. So, phew. 